2: Hello and welcome back to Close here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh.
0: <laughs>
2: Angelina, I would have got it. Have, I would have added more pizzazz to your name, but I can't do it first. It's too weird to do the the, no, and there's yeah. too many syllables.
0: There's too many syllables so, plus it kinda sounded like Tim was about to like launch into the NBA and with that introduction, so I'm okay. Yeah, I'm we okay. Need,
2: we need some some like uh jock jams going on behind us here. Logan
0: Wow, at do six not foot give up your day from job.
2: Atlanta, at all. Georgia, <laughs> starting a shooting bar.
1: It's Tim Macintosh. Man, before I started reading books, that was that was the dream right there. That's exactly <laughs> oh what God, I wanted. No,
0: no, Okay, this will shock our listeners. Right here, you're talking to most valuable player of basketball in high school every single year. Boom. No kidding. I was one of the best basketball players in this state. What? No kidding. At five foot eight. Eight and a half, yeah. But then I switched. I switched sports. I switched to volleyball and did the Junior Olympic circuit on that. But yeah. Wow,
2: wow, you're a secret athlete.
0: Oh, I played Division (laughs) One. I was a college athlete. I, shh, let's delete all of that. Angelina's a jock. I do jock. not want that haunting jock. Why?
2: It's amazing. Why
1: would you? No, 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 no. Being an athlete does not mean you're being You're a jock. I know. I'm,
0: I was definitely I'm being, not a jock.
2: I'm joking. But I'm definitely going to call her a jock. I mean, like, I feel like just for just to continue teasing her, we, I'm going to go with this. If you were my sister, I would definitely call you a jock. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just feel like you guys get very, like, you know, we're the sports guys on here. And I just grin to myself, like, okay.
1: <laughs> why why do you hide that, Angelina? That's a that's a, I don't something to be very heard. proud of.
0: Oh, uh, well, okay. This, is, this has been getting way too much therapy on the air. We should talk about the book. But, but it just, sports absolutely dominated my life for such a long mm. time that I had to take a, a very serious, just cut it off break to redefine myself and to figure out who I was if I was not an athlete I'm I'm okay you know it's full circle I'm okay with it now
2: well um like I said I would have put your I would have done the sports pizzazz for your name (laughs) but then I would have had to put you second and we all know that we don't put Angelina's name second
0: no no we do not
2: Should we do the joke? Should I set up the joke that I set up last time that we then didn't come up in the recording? No, David, we've lost
0: the moment. Do I just, should we
2: just move on? Okay. So I think you spring it, spring it one of the next on one of the next episodes. (laughs) Okay. Well, well, we are here (laughs) to talk about Howard's End, the first book of 2018. We're here to talk about chapters one through five. And before we started recording, um, both kind of off the air so to speak and then also online angelina your initial guttural emotional responses to this book were very interesting <laughs> so i want to hear i want to hear what the experience was like for angelina stanford reading the first five chapters of howard's end i'm gonna i know it's not the first time but it's the first time in a long time It's the first
0: time so, in such a long time so I've anything
2: reading them for the first time um and what was happening to you while you were reading this? Stuff.
0: Okay, all right.
2: I don't really care where you were sitting, what you were drinking and so forth, but what was happening in your insides?
0: Okay, so I'm not going to set... Okay, inner landscape question. <laughs> inner landscape, I like. yeah. Okay, okay. Um.
2: <laughs> I mean, I kind of... Well, I, just I mean,
0: think it's really funny that in the last episode, I literally said I did not have a heart book of 2017. I was really hoping I got one in 2018, right? So as soon as I... Okay, this, here's, this is how Angelina reads the book. I start reading it. I'm grinning, I'm underlining, I'm grinning more, I'm underlining more. I'm saying to myself, I think I might be crushing on Ian e. Forrester. I think I might be hard here. And I keep going and I keep going. And then I go, oh no, this is love. This is love. I love him. It- I love him.
2: I mean, is this love like how Margaret felt about the Wilcox boy?
0: Are you trying to suggest there's something passing about my fancies, David?
2: <laughs> Not necessarily in general, but perhaps this time?
0: Okay. No, but I got excited. Maybe we don't know
2: yet. Maybe we don't no. know yet. That's all I'm saying.
0: I just got really excited in his um his insight into the two Schlegel sisters. He mm. just has a lot of insight, and I feel like I am such an amalgamation of those two characters. I just I felt seen all over the place, and it made me giddy.
2: So I've got to say, on my sheet of paper here with questions that I have for you, I have a question that I'm going to ask Tim before I ask you, that is related to what you're saying right there, Tim. Are you more Helen or are you more Margaret? <laughs>
0: <laughs> false <Helen>. dichotomy.
2: <laughs> yeah, for me, it's Helen. <laughs> so, Angelina, you say it's a false dichotomy. I was going to, I was just, I thought it was a fun question. Do you see yourself in <laughs> Helen or Margaret? Because I think I'm Helen.
0: both of them. I'm both of them. But okay. When I was reading, I was thinking, which one am I? And I just, I'm, I'm both. I'm both.
2: So, can I ask you, because our listeners will be dying for me to ask this follow-up question. If I don't, I won't be doing my job very well. Can you explain about a little bit about what you see about yourself and Margaret in these early chapters and what you see about yourself and Helen? If it's too personal a question... Oh, it's not too personal. I'm, I'm just trying, trying to remember specifically. Because you say way more personal things in this show.
0: Yes. <laughs> okay, so there's a little, there's a little <laughs> running joke in, in our family because... I'm extraordinarily close to my children. And they tell me things that other children absolutely would not tell their parents. And so my daughter always likes to preface everything she says with sighing and saying, even though you're my mother, I'm going to tell you this. And I always say, don't stop now. (laughs) So don't stop now, Angelina. No, it's not too personal a question. I'm actually just trying to remember what it was that I saw. Um, They're obviously very, um, romantic intellectuals of with a bohemian bent and um, just so many of the things that they said were definitely things a that I said. And in basketball. What's that?
2: And a history in college sports.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. I, I'm going to really regret having said this on the air. I feel like okay, this is going to haunt
2: I'll, me. I'll stop. I actually, <laughs> it, I, it makes me like you more. I'm just going to say it.
0: Okay. Okay. Phew. All right. Um, there are so many lines in there about just about the way that they perceive reality they're not political they're harmonizers they 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 um they're enchanted by ideas um more than politics <laughs> especially the father where he says that, that line it's better to be fooled than to be suspicious like that could be a tendency yeah. i have but that is so my whole model for life i am <laughs> i would rather be fooled than be suspicious i think being suspicious is so awful um when they talk about this realization that there's an outer world that's so mysterious to them and people are like functioning in it and it's just such (laughs) a magical mysterious world of like bills and papers and transportation that is exactly how I feel about life and my inner landscape and the imaginary world that's what's real to me and um I look at people who can like the Wilcoxes, like function in the real world I they just they seem like Gandalf to me. I'm like, how do you do that magic? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Tim, um, I mean, you said you're more Helen. And I, I, I mean, if you want to pursue that angle, feel free. But I am also just curious about your first impressions. Before we were recording, Tim said, Angelina said, um, that it may not be <laughs> A Tim Hart book <laughs> an Angelina Hart book, which, of course, a heartbook book doesn't have to—it doesn't have to be a heartbook book to be something you can enjoy. But I am curious: uh, what about you? What your first impressions? What, what was happening in your inner life as we were reading, as you were reading? I... <laughs> Not much.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so you weren't moved by anything in it.
0: There was drinking cowboys in the first five chapters. <laughs>
2: I was I liked um,
1: the varying responses to Beethoven's Fifth. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but no, if I'm totally candid, I was like, okay, when does the book begin? <laughs> when does the book
2: start? <laughs> okay, so
0: well, and I'm over here like Ian e. Forrester knows my name and he's singing it to me. Well, okay, so
2: I, <laughs> it's funny because I actually feel. I don't know if sympathy is the word, but I like can kind of empathize with both of you on this because as well, I was I knew re-
0: right away, it wasn't a Tim book. I mean, like first paragraph is like, Oh, this is not fun for him.
2: <laughs> Wait, David, What were you Who's going to say? What I was going to say is I, I sympathize with what you're saying, Tim, or I empathize with it because um, at, there are times when it doesn't, you know, like you do kind of feel like, when is it going to begin? Like when is the actual action going to start? Yeah. And, as I'm reading it, I was kind of like, this is Tim's going to say, "When does the action begin?" <laughs> um, but I do think this is a book that gets it it's a book that is tightly plotted. And so it kind of takes some time to unfurl, to unravel hmm. itself. Um, and it's like it's very formalistic. It's like it's playing with the form, the kind of the Edwardian in a 19th century novel is playing with what's going on there and it's transitioning us to, to this newer world of the novel. So it, it, it's a very, it, in a lot of ways, I, th- I believe it is very formalistic even as it's playing with it. And I think that does unfurl. So, so I, I felt like I felt myself asking like, what's the point of this or why does this matter? Yeah. And at the same time, I was enjoying um, th- the way he's so playful with language and the way he's playing with the form and, um, how weird and confusing and hilarious and fun that these female characters are, um, and the way they're making like just the way they're—I don't know if I would say that they're teasing, but the way that they look at the world and people around them. So I was enjoying that along with Angelina, and I was also wondering when is the, when <laughs> I think is going to get started with you. That, well, you I appreciated
1: I the very last paragraph of chapter five. Right. Yeah. It seems like okay. This is what we're going. This is what this book is going to be focused on. I'll read part of it. I'll read the whole thing. For that little incident had impressed the three women more than might be supposed. It remained as a goblin footfall, and that's a reference to, it's Helen, right, who hears goblins in Beethoven's Fifth. It remained as a goblin footfall, as a hint that all is not for the best in the best of all possible worlds, and that beneath these superstructures of wealth and art, there wanders an ill-fed boy who has recovered his umbrella. Indeed. But who has left no address behind him and no name?
2: yeah well we're certainly getting you know like he doesn't one thing he doesn't waste his time doing Tim is setting out his themes for us right from the get-go <laughs> right and in fact you could you could argue that he's not subtle enough about it in some ways.
0: Oh, I love that though
2: <laughs> well and I was going to love- say
0: how it's structured has pace i love his storytelling i just i oh yeah i like his voice
2: well that doesn't necessarily and i was well so what i was gonna say is it doesn't necessarily that's not inherently a bad thing to not be subtle i'm just saying there's an argument that could be made that he could have been more subtle and different people will have mm. different opinions on that but i also think that that is where he's playing with the 19th form the novel the form of the novel i'm also not gonna like, pretend for, it for a second the though
0: that i'm being objective here i'm completely personally enchanted <laughs> well, i
2: I don't think well, isn't that the it point has to be yeah <laughs> I'm not i honestly, if I wanted like if we were just looking for objectivity on this show, you probably aren't the two yeah. chosen. no
1: yeah, d- definitely not, <laughs> definitely not
2: <laughs> I, I wouldn't have what i w- I don't think I'd mind? be good, I don't think I'd be good at hosting or being on a show that it was just like about being objective about i mean uh, just looking at a book objectively like there's a place for that, but I don't know that that's the purpose of this, i mean entirely the purpose of this show
1: i you know i I joked a couple podcasts ago with you, David, that the version of Howard Zen that you found and mailed me has all of these uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literary critical essays at the end. Yeah. Um, a critical history of Howard Zen, page 295. Post-analytic it, criticism, yeah. 313. This <laughs> so is making it has, me want to cry. I know. Right, right, right.
2: <laughs> but well, um, like I said, you asked specifically for a book that didn't have any writing in it, and it was the only one I no, could find that had no markings in it.
1: No, I actually – I'm not going to read any of these, um, but I do just find it interesting. So cultural criticism – so psychoanalytical, cultural criticism, feminist and gender, Marxist, and deconstruction. Those are the four kind of angles. And I – I'm getting, like, opinionated in my old age. I think part of the reason that this show is so fun is because (laughs) – I know. None of us – that I can detect really have like an agenda with regards to kind of like the critical lenses that we wear. We're all Christians. So in that way it's a critical lens of a sort. Um, But I don't hear Angeline like really really getting into, yeah, I've got to like hit that Marxist theory really hard, or I've got (laughs) to hit the feminist theory, you know, David's got to hit the feminist theory really hard. And that's part of the reason that I think the show is, so enjoyable is that we're all completely um we're all we all like read the books for the pleasure of it and right for for me all those critical theories are all about sort of cutting the pleasure of reading away so that you get so that the book becomes a political piece or a social cultural piece And it becomes sort of like a tool by which people can kind of like move their agenda in the world. I'm being very jaundiced about critical theory, but that's increasingly kind of how I see what critical theory seems focused
2: on. And I, uh, well, I will say, I could
0: not, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I will say that I'm really into the idea of you writing a play that has a character that's based on Angelina, who is completely into Marxist literary theory. I think that should be (laughs) Oh, wouldn't that
0: be fun? (laughs) I feel like you haven't been listening for the last three years. I've heard that come out of my (laughs) mouth. But you know, while you're talking, I'm reminded of of C.S. Lewis's essay, An Experiment in Criticism. And I think about this a lot as sort of my standard of what is it I'm doing when I encounter a work of literature. And he says, if you're trying to distill a work of literature to its universal truth, so this Marxist truth, this feminist truth or whatever, he says, you're not experiencing the work, you're using it. I think mm. that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. That's
1: perfect.
0: We are both just really resistant to using mm-hmm. art for some agenda.
2: Yep. Yeah, and so what we're all Even trying to Even if it's do... a
0: Christian agenda, I will say and throw that
2: yeah. out. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Me too. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah, so what we're trying to do here is we're having a collective, we're making a collective attempt at experiencing a book and then sharing what we're experiencing.
0: Yeah. As yes. As opposed to
2: trying to make a collective attempt to- Either argue about or persuade people to believe in a specific theory about a book.
1: Yeah. Where's the make the book together? To make the book do something in the world as a cultural artifact, you know, as as a um, right. Right. to make Ian e. Forrester the mouthpiece for whatever we want to name it, um, Marxist critical theory. Oh, look, he is undermining the capitalist order, and by doing that, we can say going forward, capitalist theory is harmful to the human soul. No, 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 no. I mean, sure, if he does that, let's let him say it. Right. But he's, <laughs> well, he's, the book has got to be more than that.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean,
0: there's no question that there are themes of gender and um economics in this book. I mean, we see that in the first five chapters. Yep, but yep. To, to to expect that he's like a propagandist or that he's pushing some ideology onto us. See, if it's if he's pushing and, and- ideology, it's not art in my opinion. It's something else.
2: Well, and even if even if we had a book that 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 we knew that the author was a noted Well, let's just say we could read a Virginia Wolf book mm-hmm. and read it and tr- just try to seek out common experience in it, right? Or try to like, try to have a, co- a collective I have read together. all
0: of Virginia Woolf's novels. She is not a propagandist. There's plenty of things to talk about.
2: Well, right, so, but, but there's, it, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm not, I am not mean to lump her into like some.
0: No, but I, I hear I what you She's definitely a favorite of the, of the feminist lit crowd, yeah.
2: Right, so we could read a book that is, that is commonly understood in a certain way and still just pursue a like, common experience in that book even if we're experiencing it different ways, I mean, common like for the group, like we're, ex- we're sharing our different experiences and having a common discussion on it, collective discussion on it. Um, so like I've thought long and hard about whether we should read books on this show that are fundamentally proposing ideas that we all completely disagree with um, or that are just very problematic. And so should we read mm-hmm. those and then discuss them um, or that our listeners would just completely disagree with and be angry most of the time you're reading it? It's probably mm-hmm. not worth it. It's probably not worth being angry while you're reading it. But there is something <laughs> said for reading those books as a work of art, as an experience in and of themselves, and just trying to figure out things for ourselves rather than – like you can, you, he can be saying something that we disagree with and still create a, a work of art that is worth experiencing.
1: Yeah. And if he says something that we disagree with, it, maybe that's cause for us to reevaluate what we believe.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Howard Zen. Um, Angelina, uh, you talked a lot. Of, you, you used some very specific words of things that you liked that are things that I enjoyed and I think are worth talking. And maybe we can convince him to come around on them. Uh, um, <laughs> you talked about things like pace and voice. Um, and those are um, vague, but still specific, formal ideas. Can you talk a little bit about- Vague
0: and specific, my specialty. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there are specific things that- are vague until we dig down a little bit right so um specific things vaguely spoken about um can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the pace um i've got lots of thoughts on voice um that that i want to kind of turn to, but I want to hear what you have to say about this pace idea first.
0: Well, it's definitely Edwardian. Okay. So a Victorian novel is going to have a much, much longer buildup first hundred pages. And you still haven't even met all the characters. I mean, talk about like laying out the themes methodically slowly uh, and, and the whole story is going to unfold a lot slower, so this, this feels Edwardian. In fact, I kept thinking about Virginia Woolf novels while I was reading it. She's a contemporary, huh. as well as a friend of his. Um, and so it's the same sort of pacing. And so it's got a lot of the trappings of the Victorian kind of stuff, like we saw with Bridesheads, but it jumps into it just way, way faster. I mean, we jump. We literally jump into a conflict that you would not see right. that in a Victorian novel. We very, very slowly build up to that. So this is that's some, more um, modern pacing, right? You just jump right into the conflict. Yeah, Which I guess a- is an ancient, it's an ancient way too, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, you're in the middle of the Trojan War, 10 years in.
0: That's right. And I i, I just, I don't know, what do I want to say? Everything, I feel like everything I'm going to say is just so vague. I just felt like it's moving along in a nice little clip, you know? Boom, boom, boom.
2: So Tim, you did not feel that that, pa- that pacing is the case? Or you just did, you felt the pacing was okay, but you didn't feel like enough, like there was anything actually happening?
1: Or did you not care about more the, the More the latter, more the latter. I, I was curious about, so... The beginning of the book, Helen has, we learned by letter, fallen in love with uh, a young man. Well, Margaret. It's Margaret, right? Margaret, excuse me. Am Wait, I, is it I, Margaret?
0: No, Margaret's the older one. Helen's the younger one. Right? And
1: Helen fell in, and Helen is the one who's fallen in love, right?
0: Yes, Helen is the younger one who fell in love, yes.
1: Yes. Um, right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Helen's sorry, fallen in love, and then Mrs. Forgive me, Munt goes to kind of rescue her. Um, and we learn a little bit about how Helen, Helen has fallen in love with this young man. And then she kind of steps back after they realize it's not going to happen. Helen sort of steps back and she looks at the young man and his family who previously had charmed her. And now she's not as charmed. And it, it struck me. How did it strike you guys? It struck me that Helen was kind of like, oh, he's not one of my people. I was enamored by the way that the will, the way that their family um, lived, I was curious about it. It was different, but then she kind of stepped back and realized. But just because it's different doesn't mean that it's me. And now, returns to London, and she seems like she is returning to her element. Not just London, but we find her again, listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. This beautiful cultural. Um, event and we also discover this other young man who we're not quite sure. Is the young man going to be interested in Margaret? Is he going to be interested in Helen? Is he going to be interested in neither? So I, I feel like this the setup is there. Um and I also there's like the nice little undertones of a sort of form of life that it seems like Ian e. Forster is recommending to us through his through the family. There's kind of a form of life the way that they approach people. So you that what, I found really compelling. Which family? The uh, he, whatever Helen and the Margaret's Schlegel. lesson is the Schlegel family.
2: So you that are Okay, yeah. I didn't know. I was just making making sure you weren't talking about the Wilcoxes, right? Yeah, not the Wilcoxes.
1: Did you guys read that the same way? Did you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Helen was initially attracted to the Wilcoxes because they were kind of like they were country. Oh, how charming!
0: Well, it's a little bit like what we saw with *Brideshead Revisited*, right? The Wilcoxes seem so capable and navigating a world that's so serious yes, right. to her, and so she's drawn by their power and their confidence. And she lets them dominate her sense of self. She gives up all her opinions for their opinions, and she's completely yeah. enamored with them. And then when she's <laughs> the whole the whole bubble just bursts and she stops being enamored with all of them and realizes this is just crazy.
2: Well, so she the book has a lot to say about imagination. So it says Oh yes it does. Chapter, I love this In chapter 4 it says the truth was she had fallen in love not with an individual but with a family. Before Paul arrived, she had as it were been turned up into his So, okay, here's the thing right now. The light my lamp someone stole my light bulb and i didn't know it so Mm -hmm. i am using my computer light to read in a dark room oh um so but but how cozy
0: and romantic
2: (laughs) yeah yeah. um it's not a candle angelina before paul had arrived she had as it were been tuned up into his key the energy of the Wilcoxes had fascinated her had created new images of beauty in her responsive mind to be all day with them in the open air, to sleep at night under the roof, had seemed the supreme joy of life and had led to that abandonment of personality that is a possible prelude to love. Um, <laughs> That's a great line. That's a beautiful on. line. She had liked being told that her notions of life were sheltered or academic, that equality was nonsense, votes for women nonsense, socialism nonsense, arts, arts and literature nonsense, except when conducive to strengthening the character nonsense. One by one, the Schlegel uh, fetishes, I feti, I don't, I can't read F E T I C H E S. I think is what it says. Had been overthrown, and though professing to defend them, I really mean like a ten-year-old. Um, <laughs> she had rejoiced. So I, this goes on and on. But um, the she had created new images of beauty in her responsive mind. Is a is a line that I think is key to what's going on here because the world is changing so much. And it's forcing people to think about each other and to think about the way they live in different ways. And when you and I think that what's happening is these women, these young women, are open to being tuned in a certain way. And so the question is, that kind of person is um, empathetic and sympathetic and fun to be around and yeah yeah fun with joy, but also easily manipulated, right? And so that's part, to me that seems like part of the conflict, at least of the early portion of the book, is as we're getting to know them are they going to be manipulated in that way or are they going to be easily manipulated into losing their ideals um, or are they going to be, is that imagination going to be tuned, so to speak, as the book uses the word in a way that is more positive. And that's I don't yeah. anything else at this point, but um, I don't know. Well, if I, maybe, typically maybe it's not too- a conflict, but it's at least, uh, it's at least a question
0: in a victorian novel this whole setup of she gets carried away with her imagination and she kisses this guy and says she loves him you know writes off to the family this is very sense and sensibility esque, right i was gonna say that yeah tip typically she's gonna be condemned right this is gonna be seen as a foolish act uh and and her older wiser more sensible sister is gonna set her straight except her older wiser sister is not the least bit more sensible (laughs) which i loved and uh She's Margaret. Helen is totally not condemned for this. You know, she's not ruined because of it. She's not going to go like waste away and be ill because it happened. Although,
2: in some ways, her it seems like her aunt would want her to be the older generation.
0: Oh, yes. The aunt is definitely the older generation. She is is being portrayed by Forster as out of touch with reality, too. Hmm. Yeah. She's out of touch with reality with the economic situation. Her advice is actually harmful. So, uh, he's definitely setting up this old new conflict and i don't know i maybe i could have be reading this into that so you guys can correct me on that if if you didn't feel like it but i kind of felt like the whole helen scenario gets treated like oh well every woman has to be an idiot once let's carry on <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i i took it that way i though i took i took mrs munts response to the fling the affair whatever it was I was impressed by her. I didn't read it as someone who was out of touch, but... Really? Yeah, but I would like to... I mean, I wouldn't mind finding that and reading it, because I fully admit I may have read it Okay, so I'm
0: basing a lot of that on all the details about how her financial advice was bad, but she couldn't see that it was bad, and she prided herself that she had, quote-unquote, saved the girl's finances when really she had given them very, very bad advice. And what they were doing on their own with the new risky investments was far more successful than the old reliable British investments, Mm. which were slowly whittling away their fortune. Mm. I took that as a metaphor to her how her relationship to the world and to the girls is on a larger scale.
1: Now, that that may be true. I was thinking specifically of when Mrs. Munt hears the story of, Helen, and what's the boy's name, the Paul. Wilcox boy, Paul?
2: Yeah, when she reads the letters there in chapter two, or hears about the letters? no, it's at, it's it's when
1: I thought it was after miss after Helen kind of recounts the collapse of the relationship, mm. this might need to be edited out because my <laughs> I read this a week ago.
2: Well, I think she is an interesting character because mrs munt yeah because for someone who is at least ostensibly sort of supposed to represent this fading away i mean at least that's how i took it i don't know if you guys took it that way like this culture that's now I, fading I away. she it's interesting that he calls her um or he says about her that to history to tragedy to the past to the future mrs munt remained equally indifferent hers but to concentrate on the end of her journey and to rescue poor helen from this dreadful mess and then it talks mm. about how um her perspective on these places, she doesn't, you know, she looks at them with inattentive eyes. She's unimaginative. She doesn't see past the obvious surface of this, like the train station, for example. Um, there was, it's, oh, yeah, the station, yes, yes. like the scenery, like Helen's letters, struck an indeterminate note. Um, and she just, she just kind of, she sees oh this is new but she doesn't understand what that means or she's not she's not looking past the surface of it so she like i said ostensibly is supposed to represent this fading away of the past but then at the same time to history to tragedy to the things that make up imagination or that 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 kind of feed the imagination she is ambivalent about those things. Yes,
0: that's a very good distinction. I'm glad you made that, because I don't think that what Forster is doing is pitting the past against the present, because he has some equally damning words to say about modernity. Yes. And it's the same way, it's all about what kills the imagination. And Mrs. Montt's economic advice is bad because she lacks imagination. And the same thing where he condemns <clears throat> Germany, which at that point would have been, you know, the, the representation of the up and coming modern world.
2: Right, so the Germany stuff was really interesting to me because my grandmother's family, my grandma was the first person um, in her family to come to America, and this was in like 1950 or whatever after the war. She came from just outside of Berlin, and she's still the only one of her family that ever came over here. So my dad's mm-hmm. cousins and stuff are all in Germany, and in the 19th century, their family, the Brockhouses, was a wealthy aristocratic German family, and they were all mm-hmm. doctors and politicians, and um, one of them was actually married to wagner and so they no were part kidding. of the, like late late 19th century world um of uh like they wrote a they wrote the diction the german encyclopedia that was popular at the time so they no were like they were, those, they were like the that academic world that that he's comparing to the british here They're like they were the kind of people who would have been like thought of the you know they were the kind of people that unfortunately fed the perspective that led to Nazism, hmm. and the yeah. idea that Germany was this like God God chosen people that was the only proper they were the only proper people to rule the world and so forth. Which I I mean I'm completely oversimplifying, but that perspective certainly came from late 19th and early 20th century German. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
1: Philosophy. It's interesting that that shows up. It starts to show up in the book. The kind of German nationalism and there's mm-hmm. kind of an English, there's an allusion to a, an English nationalism also um gosh is it late in chapter three?
0: oh yeah the, the the two sets of relatives you know yeah each of them thinks that they're god's chosen nation and they can't yes see right that. that was brilliant i also thought that the descriptions of germany just read like america though right the obsession with uh what yeah. is use only what is useful money is useful mm-hmm. the imagination mm-hmm. is not useful and also an obsession with bigness right yeah um it's the yeah. vice of a vulgar mind to be thrilled by bigness yeah that's that totally is not favorite. imagination no it kills it man those are some good lines
1: yeah those are good lines one of
2: my favorite lines my other favorite just lot, a little bit of go ahead david oh go ahead continue the thought I was gonna,
1: well gonna, i was i was going to say i was just going to talk a little bit about the rise of nationalism and late 19th century europe man i just said that sentence and as soon as it came out of my mouth i was like what are you gonna what are you talking about i'm gonna you guys i would like to talk about uh, the rise of nationalism in late 19th century europe i'm like oh man everyone in like listening distance just fell asleep (laughs) good night everyone
2: Let me know when you're done, and I'll Tim come back. A good
0: time podcast. Yeah, we'll be back in ten. Let us know when you're done. 10,
2: David please salvage this. No, go ahead and say what you were going to say. Just don't say it boring.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> that's right, Tim. That should just be a motto from now on. Say yeah, what you should. Saying, just don't it be
1: boring. Uh, 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 I would like to talk about okay. Just really quick, there is this there is this kind of movement in the late nineteenth century. A lot of it is a response to Napoleon taking over the world. Right. Um, the Germans are making themselves distinct from the French. Everyone is kind of is hoping that they can preserve their identity. And there's this big question of, well, what exactly is identity? Where does it come from? And in the 19th century, most of the conversation was about language. Language is the thing that sets us apart. Um, and there's something about the German language that makes us Germans us. It's a little bit less that way, I believe, in England, but it's that way also in France. There's something about French that makes the French French. So that's part of where nationalism, like the <laughs> people need to hear this the right way. <laughs> The kind of nationalism that comes alive and is so aggressive and putrid in the twentieth century way back in the nineteenth century' it's kind of it's got some like roots back there. I'm not claiming by any means that the nineteenth century kind of like interest in you know German as the defining feature of the german people like led somehow to nazism i don't believe that but just historically there's a little bit of a tie
2: but i'm not
1: arguing a cause i'm just arguing a relationship
2: look we're talking about ideas of sociology and history about which i know very little and i'm certainly not an expert um but it does in some ways like it doesn't surprise that a certain sense of nationalism would have come out of a world that was so steeped in imperialism. Yeah. So like right. individual nations uh, standing up for themselves, believing in their own greatness, it shouldn't be surprising that that comes in response to British and Napoleonic imperialism.
1: Mm-hmm. And that this thing mm-hmm. is
2: kind of happening at a crux, um, at a crux point when those responses are beginning to take shape. Right. And then, of course, you see this. I mean, later on, you see the same thing in response to the Soviet Union. Uh, But that's another question for another day.
1: And and I always think that English imperialism, I mean, if there were ever imperialists, it was the English. But I think that sense of nationality is a little bit less pressing in the late 19th century, just because geographically, England is an island. They are distinct geographically. There's just that little body of water called the English Channel. And they don't have to, in the same way, like the United States, we just don't have to deal with a lot of, oh, we, we don't have to deal with a lot of worries about defense because we're relatively isolated. We only have two neighbors where, you know, Germany is surrounded yeah. on every side.
2: Um, Angelina, are you asleep? <laughs>
1: if oh, you're wait, not if back? you're not angelina so, i've got a brief lecture to deliver on uh alienation in 19th century politics
0: good Thanks. could you call me about 10:30 tonight <laughs> so let me get cozy
2: <laughs> i do think though, that these these ideas relate to this idea of imagination and the idea of ha- ha- cuz part of imagination i see if i can put it in in a way that makes sense the, that could explain what i'm actually thinking here Imagination is closely tied to how we view ourselves. Um, so, hmm. um, what well, one things that, like for example, one of the things that we have is this con, this not, not conflict, but this this what may be a false dichotomy that he kind of winks at between the the imagination and and things that are commonplace. Hmm. So, my favorite line in the book in the first five chapters is when the um, the young man has come to pick his pick up his umbrella. And they accident and like Margaret kind of accidentally chases him away. Yeah. She calls the umbrella ratty and he's like freaks out and runs off and all that. And she, she like faux chases him. At least that's how I read it. But it says that their brother finding the incident commonplace had stolen upstairs to see whether there were scones for tea.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I love this idea that like the, the rest of what they're talking about is commonplace. So I'm going to go check for the, tea, check about the tea. It's, first of all, it's a British thing, but it's also, like, that... I think Forrester's winking at us here because for for the brother, for Tibby or whatever his name is, the tea and the scones or the scones or whatever you want to call them, depending on where you live, are... They are not... That is not a commonplace thing. These, like... Mm. These discussions of the feminine home and what he seems to be considering women issues like, that's the commonplace. But there's intrinsic value like this intrinsic value in the scones and the tea and like the beauty of them and so the beauty in simple things is something that seems to even be attractive to margaret when she goes out to the farm right or goes out to the wilcox house and she spends outside spends time outside with them like it's a simple way of life but it feeds and tunes her imagination
0: so well, it's the, a more physical existence. So, for somebody who's all caught up in the imagination, a lot of reality feels unreal. They have, you know, just have a hard time connecting with the physical reality. And so, they being out in nature and watching the way that they are. That would have deeply affected Helen. They would have seemed so in tune with something that feels foreign to her.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And but even and so that but that kind of goes with what I'm saying. Like the the no, I agree. The I agree. And I'm the tea Are a physical manifestation like there's something they're a physical manifestation of a sort of beauty
0: no i'm agreeing with you so their household is is dominated by the world of ideas
2: okay yeah 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 yeah, right and so so something like the scones
0: would feel special to him
2: yeah and and it probably as the only guy when there's these three women downstairs that are going crazy not going crazy but bantering crazily back and forth
0: well, he says it's a feminine household. He says that.
2: Right. So in the midst of the, the craziness of this femi- feminine household, he seems to find like there's like structure and order in in the scones and the tea that is not also, there. Also, he likes being the...
0: babied and taken care of. He,
2: he does. Yes, he does. Oh, Tibby. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually wondering if there's going to be something of Sebastian and Tibby. That's one of the things I'm going to look out for. Um, I'm not saying there A is.
0: Secret scone habit.
2: <laughs> not necessarily the extremes that Sebastian takes it, right. but sort of the same sort of role in the book. Um, he warmed the teapot almost too deftly. Let's talk about voice. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's
1: a great line. Yeah. I'm kind of coming around, This book is like, once you guys are kind of like pulling out some of these gems to look at, I'm like, yeah, this is actually really, this is a stronger start than I give it credit for. Our narrator, I want to, I want to defend it. Go I want to defend it a little bit. Like I'm just.
2: Your opinion I of the book.
1: Typically warm up my opinion. I typically warm up kind of slowly. And I typically no. do. Absolutely. I do. I do absolutely. No. Uh, pre-work on the book. I I'm a little bit committed to doing no like historical or critical pre-work on the book. Sometimes it works out extraordinarily well. Sometimes it makes me feel like, Oh my gosh, you're missing a, a lot here. <laughs> like you guys mentioned, sorry, Dave, we'll get to um, fine, voice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you guys mentioned that Ian e. Forster and was, is writing this about the, wolf sisters virginia wolf and her sister
0: yes that was before the recording i said that i had no idea
2: this is where angelina the angelina take comes out so angelina take us through it
0: well, Ian Forrester was a periphery member for about 10 years, 1910 to 1920, uh, with the Bloomsbury Group, which I guess I shouldn't assume that our listeners necessarily know who that is. But uh, that was a a famous kind of literary art set um, with Virginia Woolf, her sister Vanessa Bell, um, who's an artist, um, Lytton Strachey, the poet, um, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the economist. Uh, and Ian e. Forster and some some other kind of in and out members and um, so they were just this intellectual bohemian free thinking progressive group committed to aesthetics kind of like a a, a redux of uh, the pre-raphaelites kind of
2: mm. oh yeah that's a better similar
0: error. thing
1: i want to weigh in about the bloomsbury group my acquaintance with them is largely through Philosophy. So, G. E. Moore, who is I yes, think,
0: that was the philosopher of the Bloomsbury Group. Yeah,
1: and they invited one of my oh one of my heroes, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Who he and a German named Martin Heidegger <clears throat> are probably the most the two most influential philosophical voices of the 20th century. Wittgenstein is one of my heroes. People. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to defend him on the show. Nobody's nobody's like making it. No one's like, hey. Can you tell us more about Wittgenstein? Um,
0: hey, can you piggyback I, on that nationalism talk? And <laughs>
1: Talk about Wittgenstein. And I I'm just tempted because I love him so much, but
0: he Tim gets invited a couple times. I episode.
1: have gone off the rails. He gets invited a couple of times to the Bloomsbury group and he apparently just cannot stand it. So he like drops in and then he immediately drops out. One other thing, just because this is just a nice little nugget. Keynesian economics. So, Angelina just mentioned John Maynard Keynes. Keynesian economics is sort of like the modern incarnation of socialist economic theory, comes from Keynes. So, when people complain, this is not me issuing an opinion, this is just me reporting. When people complain about the government printing money, you know, like if there is some sort of problem with the economy and when Barack Obama stepped in and printed money to kind of get more cash into the system. That's a very Keynesian move. So, the general theory of I think it's economics by John Maynard Keynes is probably it is the most formative book in modern economic thought and Keynes is famous for saying, you know, like something like most people most people's lives are being run by an economist whose name they've never known. Well, that economist is John Maynard Keynes.
0: Yes, it is. So they were then that demonstrates that they were a hugely um, influential group. And, you know, we can debate whether or not their influence was good or bad. But in their own time, they would definitely be have been considered progressives uh, and, and bohemian and, and out there. And uh, uh, they explored a lot of life choices that our listeners would probably not be comfortable
1: with. <laughs> that was very well said.
0: <laughs> but the two women of the group um, Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell, who were sisters, uh, were friends of E.M. Forster's, and they are the model for the Schlegel sisters. So this kind of bohemian, intellectual, free-thinking family with advanced ideas, advanced, you know, not old-fashioned ideas about uh, gender and et cetera. um, Progressive. progressive idea, progressive, without any connotation one way or the other. But uh, you know, that, that's the model. That's, this, is, that's, this is the artistic world. So all this emphasis on the imagination and the aesthetic experience, that was all something that was very um, interesting to the, to the Bloomsbury group. So
2: my dad, the other day, he was um, – my mom was reading the book. And he goes – he's trying to remember which book that is. And he says, oh, yes, that's the book about how England is going to go one way or the other – and the question is, which way are you going to go? And I thought that was interesting. Um, no,
0: I thought that was Twelfth Night.
2: <laughs> <laughs> maybe this is the follow-up several hundred years later to Twelfth Night. Because, And I think the thing that's interesting, because the Bloomsbury Group and Virginia Woolf and all that, they're sitting at this, I mean, they're sitting at a very important time as things are changing. And what we don't, what we don't know yet when this book comes out is the the impact of the war that mm, that, yeah. that rides had does you know WAH had the war to look back on but this is the same asking some of those same questions um that well i guess that virginia wolf and company you know were asking but at right before the war starts so in theory there's like this optimism about what's going to happen about the world that they're living in um now we could i don't really want to tie that all back into um into virginia wolf because we could go what, for uh, a long time on no like we could go for a long time on virginia wolf's ideas maybe we should just spread those out and let angelina talk about those because i'm a novice and
0: angelina is much more knows what she's talking about mm. um well, it's, it's been a, a long story. time though since i've read that stuff but but i do i do hear i do hear um those a lot of those echoes I, you know she she and her novels also has these like victorian uh figures in her novels and tries and, and, and the interesting thing is though, you know while Virginia Woolf is, is perceived as this kind of intense feminist, she's not condemning of the women who represent the older world, just like with em Forrester um there's she's fascinated with the role that these women played at the time that they're in, but also feels like the world has changed, and also there was something progressive i mean uh, um oppressive about it as well so i've spoken so vaguely i'm thinking of like three different novels <laughs> in my head, but that was probably not helpful at all i just mean she's not uh it's not necessarily the slash and burn feminism you might expect there, there's mm. some respect for what was good she's trying to sort out what 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 was good and what mm. needs to
2: change well yeah i mean feminism of the way w- feminism of 1910 when this book was written was different than the sort of feminism of like 1971 yeah yeah, for sure. It's mean, a different. It's a different thing. Um, but yes, go- and when
0: they're talking about equality, they're they're talking about the women's suffrage issue. So,
2: right, right. And Tim, are you still you still against women voting?
1: Mercy that- <laughs> 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 has to say
0: what Liechtenstein says. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Did it's I Vichy you know, for whatever Vic, it's worth? It's Vichy. I
0: knew I said it wrong on purpose, and <laughs> you and were I
1: believe Vichy is a small country in Central Europe.
2: <laughs> were there too? Were there too many? Was that question too? Did have too many ideas? Too many accusations implicit within it? There, I don't. I didn't. Mean
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit <laughs> in logic. They would call that right a loaded question for, for
0: the last yeah, four that, years. That
1: question too <laughs> loaded. Um,
2: but let's let's talk are about you, voice
1: Tim, are you still kicking are you still kicking your dog it's one of those loaded <laughs> questions yeah, exactly no so you did yes <laughs> so you are
2: <laughs> well let's talk about voice because this narrator is very opinionated as hmm. you can get in a, in a and it's uh, much of it is subtle so he's very opinionated in subtle ways so for example he warmed the teapot m dash almost too deftly m dash rejected Mm -hmm. the orange Pico that the parlor maid had provided poured in five spoonfuls of a superior blend filled up with really boiling water and now called to the ladies to be quick or they would lose the aroma. So Mm. there's a lot of stuff in here where the narrator kind of stops and turns and starts speaking to us. And he is a very smart narrator. He's a funny narrator. And he, like I said, is very appealing. Angelina, you brought this up as something that you were, that you were enjoying. What do you particularly enjoy of our precocious narrator here?
0: I think I like the chatty commentary nature of it.
2: Is this a common, um, is this common to the Edwardian period or is this something that is, is another example of him playing with the form and being a little bit more contemporary than would have been common? Ah, is Dickens so chatty?
0: Well, Dickens is not Edwardian, but but the the Victorian narrator is extremely different. Um, uh, not that it doesn't comment, it does, but it does it in this uh, reader. If you have not noticed, this is the bad guy. also he's in black and he's very bad. you know it's that it's not light, it's really heavy-handed and um and there's a lot of reasons for that. but George Eliot especially will just grab her reader and slap her for 800 pages you know? <laughs> <laughs> like her and I say that
2: what's that did you write a thesis on George Eliot
0: I did yeah,
2: yeah so
0: I mean I don't mean that in a bad way it was just yeah. that's just that's who just that's just who George Eliot was she was so fireball she had things to say and she was gonna make sure you heard it if um, you
2: were gonna write a novel to be fair that's the novel you would have written <laughs> it's just not the only way to write a novel
0: <laughs> I probably would have at least one draft where I was slapping my reader yes this is probably true so I, I just i so there's something about his lightness about it all and it, it, he's just like the I don't deftness know. of it he's not preachy he's he's obs- i feel like okay so i feel like i'm not being talked to maybe this is the distinction the george Eliot you're being talked to she addresses you reader you the one holding this book mm-hmm. i'm talking to you you know she, she yeah. literally does that um Whereas here, I don't feel like I'm getting preached at. I feel like I'm just seeing inside his mind. And as he's looking, these are the things he's observing and thinking about. So it feels a little more stream of consciousness to me than a preachy narrator. Is that how it feels to y'all?
2: Yes. Yeah, yes. It, the, well, and that's so what when, when I was, as I was reading, I kept wondering is our narrator going to show up as a character later? Because it mm. feels like it's, it feels, the narrator feels like it's part of the world. Mm-hmm. and like it like it i'm sure exactly what you just said that made me think of that but that's how i felt i kept wondering 100 pages in is there going to be this little shift where you somehow meet like that i mean it would be a little bit maybe too cute but that's 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 almost how it feels like this person has a, a shift
1: david like like the narrator will take a step back and speak a little bit more in a george Eliot sort of
2: no, not necessarily. Frame. More like all of a sudden, 75 pages in, we, meet, we realize that the, char- that the narrator is a character who starts speaking about certain scenes ah. in the first person. Ah, like, like this is a friend of theirs or, or someone who ends up being, falling in love with Helen or Margaret or something and becomes a part of their lives. Yeah. Or a butler <laughs> who's a part of it the, and then comes back. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't even think it would necessarily be a good idea. But the narrator is so much a part of what's going on that yes. it feels like he or she could be. Um, does this narrator feel masculine or feminine to you?
1: The section that you read, it felt masculine. Gosh, I don't know though.
0: I'm having a hard time answering that too. (laughs) Because my first thought was, it sounds like a man who really understands women. But maybe I just think that because I know a man wrote it. Hmm. But it feels like he just understands the head of Helen and Margaret really mm. well. And and he does it in this non-condescending way. Mm. He doesn't pat their little heads.
1: Mm.
0: Even when they're being kind of silly, admittedly. I think he's sort of enchanted by it.
1: Oh, that's oh I get the impression that he's enchanted by them. Yeah, I think so. You know, you know one thing I noticed about the narrator is that he is very close to the action, but he is not, he's not landed on any particular character. Maybe he's closest to Helen, but we also get a long time with Mrs. Munt when she's, you know, taking the ride out to the Wilcox's farm. We also get a long time with Margaret when she is, is the guy's name Sebastian? The the oh, wow. um do we have a name for the one I don't whose think we umbrella was we don't got, have
0: a name for him yet. He didn't leave his card, so I won't he say
1: whose he whose card was left. Margaret, I you know, there's a long time where card. Margaret with him. And we even have a long, we haven't we have some time with him. You know, he's worried about trying to understand these ideas and trying to fit all this culture in his head when he is uh he thinks of himself as an unrefined man or maybe uneducated
0: i loved that scene when they were walking back to the house i loved it so much i loved how she would say something and then there was this they would just awkwardly look at each other Uh uh if she was like other women at this point she would have said this and then he would have said that and then she would have said this but she's not like other women so they just Mm. looked at each other and i was like oh yeah that's my life (laughs)
2: I love the part where it's getting inside his head too. Her speech right. fluttered away yeah. from the young man like birds. If only, he, and then it gets into his like it gets really into his head. If only he could talk like this, he would have caught the world. Oh, to acquire culture. Oh, to pronounce foreign names correctly. I love that jump there. Acquire culture. Pronounce names correctly. Oh, to be well informed, discoursing at ease in every subject that a lady started. But it would take one year's. With an hour at lunch and a few shattered hours in the evening, how was it possible to catch up with leisured women who had been reading steadily from childhood? His brain might be full of names. He might even have heard of Monet and Debussy. The trouble was that he could it's, not
1: string. It's Monet, David. It's Monet.
2: Monet. Monet and Debussy. The trouble was that
0: <laughs> What has gone? Gotten- here?
2: The trouble was that he could not string them together into a sentence. He couldn't make them tell. He couldn't not quite forget about his stolen umbrella.
0: That was awesome. All the the anxiety that keeps him from being able to pursue beauty. That was a great
2: line. I know. And look, it's great here. So yes, the umbrella was the real trouble. Behind Monet and Debussy, the umbrella persisted with the steady beat of a drum. I suppose my umbrella will be all right. He was thinking, I don't really mind it. I I will think about music instead. I suppose my umbrella will be all right. (laughs) The- <laughs>
1: that's a great that was a wonderful two <laughs> sentences
2: uh and then like if you jump ahead a little bit oh, there had always been something to worry him ever since he could remember always something that distracted him in the pursuit of beauty for he did pursue beauty and therefore margaret's speeches did flutter away from him like birds mm. um yeah. i think this
0: might be a good time to, to, to mention something that might not be readily apparent to our listeners who are modern americans um there there are, there are... There are so many subtle class distinctions in England that we don't have here. And um, so our our education system, even the mass production of clothing, Pretty, I mean, yes, you still have regional accents, but television has largely kind of leveled, you know, the American accent in a large way. So we have, we still have these things, but on a much, much smaller, smaller level. Uh, whereas in England, see, this reminds me of Theodore Dreiser's book Sister Carrie, who because he, he pays a lot of attention to all these tiny little class differences because the character Carrie is trying to raise herself up in the world, and you can't because you have to overcome all these things that she can't, these class mm-hmm. differences. But all of these like. The, the different. He would be wearing clothes that would immediately identify him as not of the same class, because he can, you can't afford. Because everything's custom made, you can't afford the clothes they have, right? His speech would have immediately given him away. He would have. These would have been things that he literally could not overcome. England does not have as part of its mythology the self-made man. That's an American thing, right? Um, uh, and so I think when we're Americans and we read these books, we don't understand why he's feeling this tension. Why does he feel so out of place talking to this woman?
2: Uh, so why does is, it seem
0: so insurmountable? Why does he run off in shame because his umbrella is in tatters?
2: Right. One of the great reasons, little hint towards the next book, one of the reasons I wanted to read um, uh, True Grit and, or at True least grit. read a Western following this is because of exactly what you're saying there. Like the self made man can spring out of a place that is uh more enamored with the idea of a wild west than it is with the idea of order Mm -hmm. if you're if you're culturally enamored with the idea of order then it's much more difficult for that self-made man idea well
0: the self-made man's a threat to the order
2: right um Mm -hmm. but in but then in true grit in the west in the american west you have a counterpoint to that so i wanted to read them next to each other because i think that's clever david that's very clever archetypal ideas that are kind of or constructs if you will that are kind of going back and forth and can have a conversation with each other so that's just a preview to the next book
1: angelina and i are kind of like just we got our nose in this particular narrative that ian forster is telling us but david is like he's the grand narrative maker
0: he's four books ahead of us we don't even know he's four
1: books ahead of us
0: you and i know how love when people on the facebook page are asking us what book is coming yeah
2: yeah, we're like
0: you know more than i know
2: let's let's go with this line of thinking i am in favor of him just like keeping up with this can you say more more about this please about how i am the puppet master and know exactly
0: yes that's exactly what tim said you are the puppet master
2: you're the puppet master we're on your strings man
0: (laughs) and my legs are so tired from all this jingle jangle
2: (laughs) well do do we need to do we need to call it a day then should we just end this episode and pick up where we're next time seems appropriate seems the right time to close shop uh, let's go ahead and just see do you guys have any uh, any final thoughts as we go on to chapter six through ten
0: Uh, My only final thought is just to continue the last thought I had about that, this this male unnamed male character, Uh, his his interests, what he's drawn to these these finer things, artistic things, beautiful music, good literature, and he's spending money to encounter those things that he really can't afford. So this will no doubt be something Forrester is bringing to our attention that what what about the person who longs for this life that they feel shut out from? How do you handle that? What does that mean?
2: Yeah, I think that plays into this idea that my dad brought up, which I'm interested to, to see how it works out. The idea that England's going to go one of two ways, and where are you going to be? In other words, who is going to participate in the ways that the way that it goes? Like, who's going to be left out and who's going to be included?
0: So and think- yeah, and look, this is, this is a contemporary conversation, too. Like, who is art for? Is it just for the highbrow intellectuals, or is art for everyone? It feeds into all of that.
2: Which might be a more obvious answer to us Americans, or like our our obvious answer to yes. 21st century Americans is going to be different, to your point, than it would be to uh, an English person of 1910, even to a poor person who, who is going to be thinking about themselves differently.
0: Very much so. Yeah, Yeah. he's not only going to have to uh, overcome external op- obstacles of money in class, but internally, you can see in his internal dialogue how much he feels... Unworthy to participate in this. It's just so foreign. Yeah, there's, there's
2: conditioning that's bad that goes on in mm-hmm. the thing.
0: And in that sense, it's a little bit of a parallel to what Helen is experiencing with the Wilcoxes, right? Drawn to this foreignness mm. that you feel shut out of.
2: There's something about these two women that he's enamored by, but it's like they're scary as well. How do you interact with yes. someone who you barely get? Like everybody has that person who they probably like had a crush on or whatever, that like you had a crush on them because mm-hmm. they were there was something mysterious and magical about them. But when someone is truly mysterious and magical or you f- think they are, how can you possibly know how to interact with them? Like You have to have an insane right. amount of confidence. And the more confidence you have, the less magical and mysterious other people can seem. <laughs> so um, I think that's interesting. Tim, do you have any final thoughts?
1: I don't. I, I feel like I... Um... Said that I was going to be bored by this book. I don't think I will be. I think I'll like this book.
2: Well, I've definitely been happy to see because I, for the first time, really, I had a lot of people, a lot of people were on there like, why are we reading this book? Um,
0: Is it just because they never heard of it?
2: Possibly. I don't know. I, I, and frankly, I, I don't really know that it I, I mean, I have no problem with someone questioning the choices that are made about the books that we read. Um, but I'm glad also to see that people are saying, oh, I get it now.
0: <laughs> yeah, as soon as mm-hmm. you started reading it, they were saying that. Tim, I'm very oh. happy to hear that you you think this might not be a torturous experience for you.
1: No, I know it won't be torturous. I mean, just because <laughs> by its reputation, the fact that David chose it, I knew that it wouldn't be a torturous experience.
2: So the final reason? It's just, reason? you know,
1: it's the conversation. It's like books of manners are are not my heart books. And I'm going to act like I'm going to talk about Dmitry Karamazov again, and I'm not. David?
0: <laughs> you are such a tease. No,
1: I'm not trying to be a tease. I just, I have so many thoughts and feelings about Dmitry Karamazov. And I just don't even, there have been requests on the Facebook page to finish my thought. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just don't know that I I can. It's like a volcano might set off. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just, I did not mean to make this about me.
0: I love that. <laughs> The episode in which Tim makes it all about him.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, what, what I was going to say to wrap it up is just that the, um, unless Tim, I mean, you can have the floor. No. No. Done, um, done.
0: <laughs> I do have a few follow-up questions about nationalism.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh, wonderful. 2017 actually was the year of Howard's End in some ways. So BBC One actually did a four-part TV miniseries uh, where they remade this that came out in the fall so i think that that's all finished now i don't know exactly i don't know if it's available on the pbs website or the bbc one website but it is out there i'm sure it's at worst you can get it on demand somewhere um with um a lot of interesting cast people i think matthew mcfadden's in it and hayley atwell and like people like that so that'll be something that we can people can watch along with it or watch ahead of time or afterwards or whatever and then also the movie which came out in 1992 and for a long time was kind of you know it was merchant ivory and some of the quality of the, the video is was not great it looked like a 1992 merchant ivory movie <laughs> but um they've since in 2017 they restored it or at least they released a 25th anniversary restoration so now yeah. it looks amazing. So if you watch huh. the movie um find the restoration version and you can see young Emma Thompson in all her clarity. <laughs> um you know
1: We this, should do that. If we talked about doing a bonus episode David where we talk about the movie, we should watch the rest, the restored version.
2: Yeah, I I mean it's just going to be a more enjoyable version. So, you know, it seems that there was a some sort of a Howard's End Renaissance. Um the uh Guardian in the UK, the newspaper also wrote a few things about the book tying when the BBC one series came out so there are a few um, articles and things like that that are out there that you can that you can pick up and if if you're so inclined so hmm. it seemed like a good moment to, to to do it
0: yeah we never mentioned that uh, Howard Zinn is considered to be Forster's masterpiece it is you know he wrote right, a lot right, of things. Yeah. right this is considered his masterpiece.
2: Yeah, he he was very successful. Um, he wrote um,
0: "Passage
2: other, to India." Passage to India, yeah, yeah. That and was a room the with one. view. And a room, yeah, a room with room a with view. The view. All of these things have been made into movies, um, starring Meryl Streep <laughs> and Helena Bottom Carter. Mostly Helena Bonham Carter, yeah. Yeah.
0: She is so personally thankful for Ian e. Forrester. <laughs> no
2: doubt. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's that's all I have. I, are, are, is that it? I mean, are you, are you you had your final thoughts. Do you want to... I'm happy and content. the angles? Okay. You have any more we takes? We should stop anymore?
0: while Tim is happy and content. Yeah, for,
2: that's what <laughs> it. for however
0: long this might last, let's
2: preserve this moment. <laughs> well, Tim, it's playoff time, so good luck to your Atlanta Falcons this Saturday.
1: David, thank you. I was heartbroken on Tuesday morning. All those who need to know probably know oh, what so, I'm talking so about. about. Oh, my that. gosh.
2: It w- The it, Georgia I was, Bulldogs. I you were heartbroken, and I was just angry. I was just like, I was, I was angry for you. Uh, I, mean, I wasn't really angry, but I was, you know, sports fan angry. <laughs> do you, you know what the hardest thing is? It's like you,
1: lo- I loved the guys on the Georgia team. I just love those guys, yeah. and yeah. they fought so hard. I mean, they just fought so hard, and I, I think Alabama was a centimeter better than Georgia, and they won. And they had some luck
2: along the way. And they had
1: some luck, they did. And I think if the ball had bounced a different way, Georgia could have won it. And I just was like, oh, those guys just worked so hard. I just wanted to pay off for all that work and character i just loved that team i the, was so sad
2: tuesday morning fourth down that they converted down in the red zone where the quarterback uh, he was not throwing it to the guy within 10 yards to anybody within 10 yards he was my buddy andrew different. said the exact same thing and i was like
1: no i andrew i think it was a great throw david i think it was a great throw no, i really do an
2: angle where it shows who he's throwing to and it, when you see the angle there's absolutely no way that calvin ridley was in his line of sight Really, he's behind three people, and he just throws it up to the guy in the back line. And Ridley just is, does an athletic move and goes and gets it. I don't, I don't think that he was throwing it to that guy. Wow! But I just said it publicly, so maybe, like maybe the quarterback's gonna come out and tell me I'm wrong now. But yeah, maybe he is. He's gonna, he's gonna tweet you. <laughs> yeah. If that happens, it means this is wrong.
0: actually the part of the show where our listeners are gonna take a nap. <laughs> 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 no, no, I know. <laughs> that meanly it's just that they always on Facebook say they don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about football. This was a football game Monday night. Was, that Tim it, yep. was deeply invested in.
2: Tim's team was playing in the national championship game in college football.
1: I haven't won a national championship in thirty-seven years. This was a moment for us.
0: It's just been a hard couple of years to be a Georgia football fan. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it's been a hard 37 years
2: but hey you're listen. talking to
0: someone who grew up with the uh 1970s new orleans saints i feel you okay <laughs>
2: oh yeah 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 hey listen you have the atlanta falcons or as graham calls them the atlanta falcons have redemption <laughs> available to them good the, the narrative this weekend can change right they can good they can, i love it david the new, it. new story <laughs> starting this weekend See, you are the big you are the big narrative guy. Against the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> the Eagles.
0: Look how you are such a good director for Tim. Look how you just draw all this emotion out of him. And I'm just <laughs> like, you're gonna have to stop telling me what to do. And, and Tim is just like loving it.
2: <laughs> and Tim, they're gonna win. Oh, I, believe, I love it, David. I love I it. I
0: believe
2: the Atlanta Falcons <laughs> are gonna beat the Philadelphia Eagles this weekend. And the, na- the I do, actually. Changed.
0: David, do you have a good prophecy about me that does not involve a football?
2: Well, I had one about the Saints.
0: I <sighs> don't really care.
2: <laughs> um, I believe that you are going to have a dream sometime in the next 40 days, wherein it is on the night of a high school basketball game, and you're supposed to be playing, but you can't find your uniform.
0: Okay, this is a curse. Ooh. I also have a recurring dream of going through the cafeteria line and dropping my tray at the end. <laughs> Thanks a lot.
2: I I have a I have a prophecy that the lost sports uniform is going to replace the cafeteria. Uh,
0: All right, just be forewarned. When I wake up in the middle of the night in a panic sweat, I'm texting you and waking you up.
2: <laughs> I will not wake up from a text. Um, that would not be possible. You probably would have to come to my house and then throw one of my children on me, and even that might not work. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that we should probably wrap this up because this, this show is going nowhere yeah. very quickly. Um, thank you to everyone who's been listening. It's
0: been uh, a weird one.
2: <laughs> thank you to everyone who has uh, been supporting us on Patreon. If you want to learn more about how you can do that, it's patreon.com slash close reads. Um, and we have um, lots of great content, podcasts coming podcast content uh coming out in the next few weeks so be on the lookout for that um i guess i guess that's it angelina and tim said they had nothing else to say i don't really believe them there's this tension that feels like it's going over the internet right now that i'm supposed to ask them again but i'm not going to so for angelina stanford for tim Macintosh, and for all of us here at Circe thanks so much for listening this has been another episode of close reads on the Searcy institute podcast network we'll talk to you next week